This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Jim Gray, CFO of Ingredion. We make ingredients for food and beverages that you consume and eat each day in over 120 countries. And you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 650. IBM and CA, we were acquiring a lot of companies, a lot of cloud-related companies, and the initial reaction from folks was to take these companies and bring them in under the big umbrella, you know, rationalize for rationalize for cost. I think sometimes that destroys value. Not everything in the world of intellectual property is a piece of code. You know, many times it's the business process and the people behind it that, that, that really are the key differentiators. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Karen McGrath, CFO of Avaya. In 2008, when IBM leadership needed a finance executive to lead a corporate-wide restructuring, Karen McGrath's name began to circulate. Having a reputation as a troubleshooter, McGrath was asked to take on the restructuring assignment. And as he had so many times in the past, he said yes. What McGrath did not know was that his latest tour of duty raised his profile to many and all. So when the CFO of IBM Software decided to leave the company, McGrath was quickly tapped to fill the role. Having a combined business of over $20 billion in sales, IBM software was the stripe on McGrath's sleeve that would open future CFO opportunities at companies such as CA Technologies and today Avaya. Our talk with CFO Karen McGrath begins after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt, your need to evolve, your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, Visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking to Karen McGrath, CFO of Avaya. Karen, welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Jack. I appreciate it. Hey, Karen, we always begin by asking our guests to look back for us and sharing with us some of those experiences they feel prepared them for a CFO role. What, what is it that comes to mind for you? Well, sure. Uh, you know, like anything else, uh, experience is a, is a great teacher. And the longer you've been around, and I've been around a long time, you get a lot of experience. Um, I was really fortunate to have a long stretch of my career uh, with IBM, 30 years, you know, a massive company. And... Within that, you know, I was able to experience firsthand many different business units, different business models, business model transitions, leadership styles. 
In fact, many times moving from one business unit to another, even though it was done IBM, was akin to moving companies. It was that different, different product offerings, locations, individuals, leaders, business models, etc. So while there was a common ethos, you still got a chance to actually to experience something new all the time. And, and I would say that what, what that role, what that really did for me was sort of push me out of a comfort zone. Um, I, early in my career, I earned a reputation for something of a workhorse and a bit of a problem fixer. And while this was fortunate in the long haul, it didn't always seem that way at the time. But I was constantly getting pulled into special projects, formations of new divisions, business units, new business or tax models, formations of you know, new locations, acquiring companies. So I changed job roles often, which meant there was always new challenges and really pushing me out of my comfort zone um, because I was never really able to, to stay in any one place for an extended period of time and get too comfortable. And honestly, that was a great, uh, that was a great teacher and really prepared me well just because I've had amassed such a vast level of experience and contacts. And it's amazing in as big an industry as the tech industry is in, which I've been in now for, you know, well over 30 years, the number of people who you run into consistently time and time again from the past and, you know, you continue to do business with them, um, it's it just the relationships you form, uh, experiences, it really all just comes together to, to really position you and help you become a, a CFO. Well, that is a remarkable span of time to spend with one company, especially today. Uh, three decades, really, at IBM. And one of the things I think is interesting, or just to highlight, is that it looks like you had a variety of different experiences across the spectrum there, uh, different product groups uh, and services. Uh, you were FP&A over their, their services group for a while. Uh, but can you, can you speak more to the variety of different offerings that you were involved with? Yeah, well, I mean, to, to, to even take it a little further than that, so, you know, I was in businesses as diverse as storage and semiconductors, and I spent five years in semiconductors where, you know, on a, on a good day it's bad, on a bad day it's terrible just because of the market. And I went from there into actually sales, supporting the, uh, supporting the global sales organization for IBM. Did that for a couple of years, and then I was asked to come up just based upon the experience I'd had in the hardware side of the world to help the services team try to brand many of their offerings and take more of a product-centric you know, centric development and investment approach to really uh, bring some dis- discipline in how you, you would engage in, in service offerings. So it was, it was quite a contrast. Uh, but I will tell you the experience of you know investments that I had learned in the, in the storage and the semiconductor world, as well as time spent with our sales uh, our sales teams and how they sell it, really helped help position me. And truthfully, all of those together, because when I went to the IBM software business, we had a two billion dollar services business in that business as well. So I was really well prepared for um, for handling that when I got to, when I got to IBM software. The, the experience with sales you mentioned, I mean, what exactly was the role they, they carved out for you there? Was it an existing role or was it, hey, we could really use a finance guy at the table as we try to price this or, or talk about this investment? What was it exactly? Sure. sure. So, I mean, the, the sales organization literally managed all the relationships in the 180 countries that that IBM did business with around the world and ensured that, you know, there were plans put in place. So coverage model, you would work to support all of the coverage models. While each of the individual business units had their own discrete sales force, for instance, 
IBM Software had well over 20,000 sellers. All the relationship peoples, if you will, the territory leaders, the area leaders, the country leaders, all reported into into S&D. So you were there involved to actually ensure that there was alignment of both plan, the quota, the uh, all of the key initiatives were actually aligned across the business. So it was an existing finance role, and you were there to really enable just IBM coming together, you know, this very diverse set of portfolio companies coming together so that you would present one face to the customer. Similarly, from a finance perspective, we, you know, brought it all together inside of the sales organization as well. It's where I learned about, you know, setting quotas and different incentive plans for sales forces, all the different types of specialties, who's on quota, who's not on quota, uh, team quotas, individual quotas, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and learned a lot about how measurements really do drive the motivations and you try to align those uh, incentives up with the with the measurements, uh, you know, to drive for the best success. Along the way, was there a time you felt like maybe the the finance resume you were building, you had spent decades building? I mean, let's say you were there already twenty years, and you get you get pulled off the road into some uh, special project, and you wonder, wow, you know, I I'll spend another year here, but this isn't exactly what I had in mind. How did you keep on track? Well. You know, it was a little bit of, I guess the way I've always worked it for me was I put my head down, you know, do what I was asked to do, do it to the best of my ability. And I always figured I'd, I'd, I'd get looked out for, right? Because if you did the job well, you'd get taken care of. But one of those, you know, uh, sort of assignments that you talked about was after I was in that services business for about a year and a half trying to help them, um, it was during the 2008, you know, 2009 Great Recession, the Great Financial Crisis, I was asked to come down and lead a uh, a corporate-wide restructuring um, of the company, uh, just based upon the fact that I had spent so much time in so many different business units, and that uh, you know I was sort of, I was sort of my work on the service side of it was was sort of coming to an end. Come down here and do a six-month uh, tenure, and that was tough work. You know that was really tough time because you're really forcing decisions and and trying to push along. You know restructuring to in, in the new economic reality. And at the same time, wanting to ensure that you were positioning the company appropriately uh, for where the opportunity was going to be longer term. So there was a lot of complexities at play and took a great advantage of, of a lot of my experience. But at the same time, it wasn't something that I wanted to do for any extended period of time. But as luck would have it, it was a role that was temporary in nature because the individual who was the CFO of IBM Software at that particular point in time actually decided to leave the business for another opportunity outside the company, and I was I was available. And because I had had the services experience, because I had had that sales experience, um, I was uh, I was just right, uh, Johnny, on the spot, if you will, and just, and just good fortune, uh, good fortune as well. Now, looking back, would you say that, uh, again, it seems like the opportunities that came your way, you were uh, perhaps more accepting than others. To say, okay, I'm your, I'm your Mister Fix It. I, I mean, it sounds like you—that's where you built your reputa- reputation. Would you have done it differently? Do you think you said yes too many times? Uh, you, well, you know, I guess it comes a little bit. We're all influenced by our background. You know, I'm I'm the I'm son of immigrants. Right? My parents are from Ireland. Uh, I worked worked three jobs to go to college. You know, work is all I ever knew how to do, and and worked hard. And had the opportunity to work for you know a company that was as, as premier as IBM was at that point in time, just seemed like a great opportunity for me. 
and the chance to work with so many, uh, you know, so many people who had such a rich education and such a rich history, founding this initiative, you know, starting this product and things like that. I mean, you were learning, uh, you were learning at the feet of, of people who had really been pioneers in the industry. So I always felt that I had been taken care of. I'd been given so much opportunity. Uh, I, I always said yes. You know, there was many times that I thought I should have deserved a promotion here or there. And if I had, you know, if, if I probably had earned it, I felt. But in retrospect, the experience I had got with that slight detour, maybe that little step to the right or step to the left for a while, uh, set me up for more success later on. And clearly, I would never have been the CFO of CA Technologies or the CFO of Avaya. Uh, if I had not taken many of those other experiences and, and side roads. So I guess that's kind of the way I was raised, you know, to be a little bit accepting of that because there was so much opportunity associated with it. Well, you explained that so nicely. I, I do want to just stay on this just one or two more questions. So forgive me because it's, it is an interesting career and it's a block of time we seldom see. Of course, IBM is very big and could offer all sorts of experiences, which you've explained nicely to us. So thank you for that. But the one I'm curious about is finally you do you do st take that next step and you step in uh, to CA Technologies, where of course in short order your your name CFO. Um, I mentioned that because where you recruited was it, and I have to believe over the years you had a number of recruiters who called and it was always no. This time it was yes or no. Were the circumstances different? Well, you know you're you're, you're very right. Um, for a long time, you know, we had been led to believe by many of the recruiters, hey, you spent 30 years in one company, you know, you're probably, you're probably not going to get an opportunity elsewhere. You should have left when you had the chance. Um, and, you know, that was always in the back of my mind. The second thing is I was a very loyal, uh, very loyal IBMer. I had uh, actually, in fact, two of my older sons uh, work for IBM still uh, to this day. Um, so it felt, you know, it, it would have felt like, Going before my retirement time, I was there for 30 years. I'd earned my retirement. I thought it was the right opportunity. The truth of the matter was I left because there was a couple of former IBMers at the company that I went to who I had worked with, who I had a lot of respect for, who had always treated me well. And the part of my resume that I knew I was lacking in, I did not have a lot of that external governance, that board access. Uh, given, as you say, I was working in a big company in IBM, it was very much inward-looking, and I didn't have that chance to really interact with a board as frequently as I would have liked to put me in a position to go into a CFO role. And that's the role they offered me to come over to, uh, to CA for, to be a corporate controller, to deal directly with the, the audit committee, um, the M&A committee, which I had a lot of experience on, and it was just honestly a match made in heaven. And, you know, sure enough, um, as fortune would have it, the fellow who was the CFO there who had brought me over, he moved on as well to, to other pastors, and, uh, and I got to do uh, got that opportunity as well. So I really felt like it all worked out, even though I didn't necessarily have a firm plan uh, per se. And, of course, uh, today, you in 2019, you step in uh, to a CFO role at Avaya. So, Karen, uh, this is the uh, part of the podcast where – we like to discuss the business with our CFO guest. And uh, I begin by sort of putting it back on the, the CFO to offer us a summation of this business rather than have me provide an overview. We want to hear it from you. you know, and basically, I'm asking the question. It's a very broad question. What does this company do? And many of us know Avaya, but some might not. And what are its offerings today? Right. So we're we're one of the largest pure play global communication and collaboration companies in the world. 
Um, you know, many of you, uh, if you go into many businesses, you'll see the Avaya phone sitting on, on the desk, and uh, they, they have been a mainstay for many, many companies uh, around the world. We have over 100 million seats, uh, meaning uh, you know, customers are licensed to use our communication software. Uh, we have over 110,000 customers around the world in 180 80 countries, 8,000 employees, you know, servicing 90% of the Fortune 100 and really just a blue-chip set of, of uh, companies overall. But, you know, you think about a world of contact center, you know, when you dial your 1-800 number for help or for service or you're calling to check on your bank account or something like that, much of that software is actually being driven by Avaya contact center software. Um, the, but the company was in the past uh, hardware driven and has really worked hard over the last uh, you know the last five years in particular to really make that transition to a, a software and services company in our most recent quarter uh, software and services was eighty nine percent of the revenue you know you only have to go back to uh, about three or four years ago where hardware was still thirty thirty five percent in total so we've been making a really you know dramatic and radical transformation to go into the cloud and deliver you know, to, to deliver all of these apps uh, to help our, our customers run their communications and collaboration uh, systems. And we're, we're doing it now through a subscription and cloud model. And we've, you know, began that transition and started to execute on it in a very short period of time. Yeah. Now, you arrived, like I, I mentioned, in 2019. Can you give us a sense of what are your priorities? I mean, this is a fairly sizable firm. Uh, so you have a team already in place, one would imagine. But did you did you reorganize things? Did you do things? Want to do things a little differently? So you know, when I had when I had joined in January uh, 19, and just getting back to the how small a tech world is, I had worked with the CEO 25 plus years ago in IBM, and the chairman of our audit committee was a colleague of mine as IBM at IBM as well, uh, Stan Satula. So, you know, two relationships there as well that I had from, uh, from a prior life. But when I got there, the company had just emerged uh, from a private company status into a public company in December of 2017. So I came on board about 14 months after they had been a, com uh, a public company. And by and large, you know, I would say my finance team that I, I got was a good team. But they were exhausted from almost two years straight of the processes of exiting bankruptcy, emergence as a public company, establishment of the new revenue accounting standard 606, the new lease accounting standards 842, implementing all of the controls that you need to do as a public company like SOX, accelerating a closing schedule, and on top of that, you know, managing a transition to the cloud away from the traditional hardware business, a hardware premise-based business into the cloud. I mean, the team was just all out. They had been just killing, killing themselves because the rate and pace of change for the organization was just dizzying. So while I didn't have to make any major reorg, what I did have the good fortune to do was bring in about eight key finance professionals and leaders who I had worked closely with in my past life who, you know, from my view, knew what good looked like, right? These were individuals who were highly collaborative. Uh, you know, they had just tremendous experience, great work ethics, all about, you know, all about working for the team and, and making the overall, um, you know, achieving the team goals. And they were just the right injection of talent to help bolster the existing team. And really, I wouldn't have been able to accelerate many of the changes that I've done if I hadn't, uh, if I hadn't combined those as well. So, you know, everyone's got different styles. Um, I'm a I'm a pretty calm person now. I wasn't always that way, but I guess 30-plus years in this industry will teach you how to do it. 
And, um, you know, and I, I treat my people the same way that I would like to be treated as well, with respect. But at the same time, we have, uh, we have high standards. And I'm really pleased that the team has moved very quickly to adopt those standards and, you know, to really, to really join forces and just, get all, just be all in on, on driving success for the, for the company. I mean, there's just so many accomplishments that we've done internally that, you know, they'll never see the light of day externally, but it just, I'm just so proud of what the team's been able to uh, accomplish after being, you know, running, sprinting a marathon, if you will, for two years back in 2017 and 18, uh, you know, for me to be able to continue to do this with them in a COVID environment as well. And just the teams are a high performing, high performing team. It's really, it's really very satisfying. Now, as someone uh, who, again, uh, you know, has built their career in finance for as many years as you have, interested to learn whether there are new ways you're trying to measure this business that you're currently in measures that maybe uh or metrics uh that you've only begun to use because of the capabilities that are now out there to measure whether it's customer engagement whether it's curious if there are new business dynamics that your team is today measuring to help you better understand how the company's performing what would what would you tell us sure well i mean you know first and foremost we we really want in terms of just top of mind we want the business to to be able to be comparable to other cloud related companies so you move away from the metric of you know sort of one time revenue and you move more towards the concept of recurring revenue annually recurring revenue um from a subscription perspective you know what are your what what are your uh, your net you know your net renewal rates because it's a whole concept of the land the adopt the expand, the renew. I mean, these are all new concepts that you're just embedding into the company. While we've always looked at, at seats as sort of a measure, you know, seats come in many different form factors. Are they delivered on a traditional premise-based model? Are they delivered in the cloud? Uh, are they potentially some combination of both, as many customers will do that? What's the, what's the pricing uh, on all of those as well? So a real push from a company perspective to start looking at the business much more from its recurring nature and, and looking at ARR, splitting it by customer segment, uh, looking, at it, um, looking at it by the key product offerings, uh, everything being offered now as a service. So very, very different world than what the teams had been used to, uh, used to in the past. We actually put together a metric called CAPS, and the metric was all around our cloud alliance partner and subscription metrics. And it was a metric really designed to demonstrate to the street how quickly Avaya was sort of shedding the old mantle of a hardware a premise-based software company more towards a modern subscription and cloud company. And it was a metric that, you know, um, two years ago was 10 to 12% of the business was being driven on this CAPS metric. Last year, it was about 15 to 16%. You know, this year, we're going to be well into the mid-20s, and our longer-term objectives are, are obviously to, you know, to double that uh, as we go through time. So a very different, um, very different way of looking at the business, and it's a, a metric that's simple enough that our investors and the analysts who cover us can look at it and just track a rate and pace of progress because there's a lot of churn going on underneath the surface as you're moving from one model to another. And this is a sort of a high-value metric that we've given. We used to have a lot of metrics. 
it made it difficult for a lot of the analysts who covered us, and they're still not completely satisfied with the caps. We'll probably bring nature of caps as well. Um, but it really does help help point them uh, to where to where we have come from and where we are right now and where we're going. Great, great, great example for us. Thank you. Um, what, and I'm curious if whether there's a number that uh, or a metric that you've used internally, uh, and not not educate uh, external stakeholders, but uh, you've used internally to help the organization respond, to help the organization or, or or the team understand. You know, we need to be paying more close attention to this uh, as we try to get a better fix. Uh, on growth or whatever it might be, is there anything internally maybe that you're you're, you're pointing out to your team frequently, or you you put on the dashboard and 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 you know put an asterisk next to it, whatever, uh, just to draw attention? Yeah, to no, it. and it's very much in keeping with that concept that we talked about earlier about the land, adopt, you know, expand, renew, and it's all about as you migrate customers from the old model to the new model. You know, how are we up? How are we up, upsizing this? You know, what does the initial upsizing look like? So compare the run rate of the new revenue uh, on an annual basis versus the run rate of the old revenue. And then tracking that through time, looking at it by cohort, cohort to see are we expanding it further. So that's really what I, you know, I'm constantly asking my sales teams to take a hard look at and drive them to further expansion. So you just mentioned what we're, we're talking to a good number of finance leaders about, and they are... Spending a lot more time, it seems to us anyway, with the with the uh, with the sales team, trying to understand that pipeline, trying to help them measure and gauge it better and more effectively. Um, do you find you can look back to your experience at uh, IBM Sales, you know, uh, software group and 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 prior, and 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 compare the level of collaboration that would take place between sales and finance. Um, uh, and I don't think it's greater today, but I do think there's uh, there's a different uh, give and take. There's a different uh, – maybe it's more robust. Can, can you describe the interaction between sales and finance and whether it's changed over time? Or tell me, no, Jack, it hasn't changed at all. It's just, uh, you know, it's just different in some way. Well, listen, there's always going to be a level of, um, you know, continuous between our organizations. Um, obviously, you know, I tell, I tell my partner in sales that I'm never going to say something to the CEO that I wouldn't say to his, his face directly as well. But I do think, to your point, there is, it, it's probably a little easier now, and, and that is, you know, tools like Salesforce, right, which really help and, you know, have got this very disciplined approach about how you measure your funnel, how you measure your pipeline, and measure that success. You know, there's not multiple versions of the truth anymore, or at least there's not multiple versions of what that funnel and pipeline is. So at least you're able to now discuss um, on a common set of metrics. In the past, you know, I might have looked at some particular spreadsheet and said, oh, look, looks like we're woefully inadequate from a pipeline perspective. And the sales guy would have come back to me with his own analytics and said, nope, you're looking at it wrong. If you look at this, this, and this, and I'm handicapping this differently or all the rest of it, I'll get there. We don't have those debates anymore because we all agree you know, to look at this 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 one uh, tool, the information coming out of Salesforce. So I do think that helps uh, in in a great deal uh, as well. And I'll tell you, I just spent you know I spent about an hour of my time today with our sales leader and our sales ops leader, just going through the comp plan again for this year, 
um, you know, just to make maybe final refinements. We're, our fiscal year begins on October 1st. You know, we've launched it. We already have our quotas mostly mostly out there, but we're just looking at some, you know, some final spiffs and, and some extra incentives that we might have uh, have out there. And then we spend a lot of time in collaboration and agreement on those topics. Well, that's great uh, detail there for us. So thank you for that, Karen. We know that the health and safety of your employees was, of course, a, a top priority for you as we uh, began operating in this new environment as of six, seven months ago now. What would you tell us about how you've been able to operate, though, in this environment, just uh, from a sort of functional uh, point of view? Uh, you know, once we got our teams all set up to work from home, and, and listen, this is the business we're in, right? I mean, we enable, uh, we, we enable video collaboration capability. We enable, um, you know, we enable being able to work together um, online. I mean, I, I'm talking to 50, 60 people a day, and it's the same thing as if I was in the office sitting next door to them. So this is what we do. So it didn't take us long leveraging our own technology to get them up and running. The second thing we turned to quickly was our, our customers, right? Um, we... Uh, first and foremost, you know, using our remote work capability, we enabled inside of a month our customers to actually deploy two and a half million temporary seats that allowed them to extend the existing licenses they had and allow them to utilize it remotely. And it, that was massive. So we gave it to our customers for free for 90 days to help tide them through the height of the crisis back in March and April time horizon uh, when just no one knew what was going on. Uh, we did that. Uh, we delivered it at scale. I don't think any other provider uh, could have done that. I mean, we're literally talking millions of seats here. And these were efforts, you know, we provided support to emergency services, healthcare, universities, schools, governments all around the world, healthcare agencies. Um, so, you know, it was firstly, it all started about keeping customers, employees engaged and ensuring that they were productive while they were working from home. And obviously that was keeping them safely. It quickly became all about ensuring business continuity for our, our customers. And longer term, you know, this is now the new reality. Anybody who puts in place a, a business continuity plan has to anticipate, has to expect that they're going to need to do this. So it's not just enough to be able to do it at a meets minimum level. Longer term, it's about shifting to keep the customers connected to the companies in the most efficient manner so that the customer experience, which is what it's all about in this world, uh, doesn't suffer. And I think, you know, in many ways, it's in a perverse way, as, as terrible as COVID has been, and there's no doubt it hit our mid small and mid-market customers, you know, badly. You know, from an enterprise perspective, it was actually a bit of a boon to us because it demonstrated first and foremost that Avaya was a um, mission-critical uh, supplier and a mission-critical uh, customer, uh, partner rather. And, uh, and it helped our customers really continue to keep the engagement level up, uh, up with their, their customers. From my own perspective, you know, finance, obviously, I was, um, you know, looking at ensuring the creditworthiness of our clients, right? Uh, many, many of our clients were hit, hit pretty hard, and you start to look at them, you know, negotiate some extension of their uh, accounts, um, accounts receivable terms. We certainly had, had some of that, and look, ensuring liquidity was foremost, uh, was obviously a, a thing of concern across the market back in, uh, you know, February, March uh, time horizon before the governments, you know, came in and, and put a lot of liquidity out there. Uh, so we spent a lot of time, you know, ensuring with my treasury team, ensuring that uh, there was plenty of cash on hand, uh, access for ourselves, as well as that we could work with uh, work with our clients. And honestly, I think it's a credit to, you know, much of the, just the creditworthy blue chip customers that we've had, 
We've seen very little impact. Uh, we've seen very little impact in terms of liquidity issues with our, our clients not being able to pay or anything like that. And more importantly, the help that we gave them as part of this temporary two and a half million licenses, you know, has really developed um, just a lot of, of, of good engender, just a lot of good good feeling and good support with our partnership. And so far, we've recognized about 50% of these seats that we put out here were monetizing in some form or fashion. So our customers are coming forward. They're looking at their longer-term plans, realizing that, you know, remote work needs to be there for the long, long haul, and they're entering into, by and large, long-term subscription deals with us, um, you know, to, to, to buy this additional product. Okay. A nice, nice uh, update for us there. Uh, we are going to, um, we have arrived at our, what we refer to as our finance strategic moment question. And this is, could be any time during the course of your career, but this is where we ask if you could share a moment of strategic insight that you experienced as a finance, senior finance leader, uh, where your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to see something and you responded to it, whether it was a risk or an opportunity, whatever it may have been. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, I guess it, it, it depends. Are we going to take the moment literally or maybe more figuratively? Because I did have what I'll call one of those finance strategic moments, but it was really, um, really something that stood out to me, which was we were acquiring a lot of companies, a lot of cloud-related companies, uh, early in my career, both with IBM and CA. And the initial reaction from folks was to take these companies and bring them in under the big umbrella, you know, rationalize for rationalize for cost, you know, but blue wash the processes, make it look very consistent. And some of the things that I realized very quickly was that the very active integration can sometimes destroy value. And sometimes, even though it may cost a bit more, it takes. Um, it's more important to actually leave it somewhat re remote and allow that which really differentiated it to function until you truly understand how to properly integrate it. So, you know, many times historically there's always been a rush to try and integrate a company when you do it. I, I think sometimes that destroys value because what you need to do is ensure that that very set of processes or those very set of people who help differentiate the asset that you bought because not everything in the world of intellectual property is a piece of code you know many times it's the business process and the people behind it that uh, that really are the key differentiators and to do that a little differently and i think when i had that realization and cu coupled with that with the courage to stand up and say nope i know this is the way you'd like to do it but my recommendation is this is the way we should do it and let some of these companies run more standalone run more remote until we're in a better position and we have a better understanding of each other and we can drive value. And I tell you, that was a, a big learning point for me. It led to, you know, it was a bit of a contrarian point of view for a while, but I think it led to some of my, my bigger successes. When we return, CFO Kieran McGrath enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. 
We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're back with Karen McGrath, and we've entered the mentoring round. Karen, we like to uh, ask our, uh, you to look back once more for us to that first time you stepped into the CFO role and had all of those responsibilities land on you. And I'll allow you to choose the moment, whether it was at IBM or whether it was at CA Technologies when you first step into that role. But uh, if you could go back and give yourself some advice, what would it be? And again, we're talking about leadership responsibilities here. It's where, you know, the buck stopped with you. And uh, what would you go back and tell yourself? Yeah, I, I think the first thing, and it probably applies as much to your career as it does to that, is to be patient and to trust yourself. You know, too often... Too often you want to, you know, you have people who are advising you that quote or herd mentality. You have to do it this way. You have to do it that way. And not that, you know, not that you shouldn't be fact-based, but many times you have to be more patient and trust your own instincts as well. Um, so I think that to me was, you know, having the courage to step up and, you know, without going into a great deal of specifics, I could say very early in my career as a public company CFO, um, I had to, you know, make a decision that probably wasn't the most popular one. Um, and I, would, I trusted my instinct uh, with it, and you know I will say that it was uh, it was the it was the acquisition not made, if you will, um, that I think uh, I, I think was a really you know saved a lot of shareholder value, um, and I think that was uh, it was a really I was really pleased with myself that I did that, and I trusted my own instincts uh, in, in doing that. Interesting. We don't often hear about the about stopping a deal or, or, or saying no to a deal, yeah. thumbs down. So that's a great, great one for us to think about. Sometimes momentum, you know, you have to stand up in front of that truck. And I think it takes, listen, it takes the courage of your convictions to stand up and do that um, as well. And, you know, I, I felt empowered to do it. <laughs> Is We'd like to ask if you wouldn't mind to think a little bit about your, your personal habits or in the, on the, your daily routine. You, you've emphasized um, clearly that you've always been a hard worker and it's always something that you uh, has been part of you. But is there is there some habit or part of your daily routine, something that you do that uh, you believe, you know, contributed to your success as well? You know, I, I think well, part of it is I'm pretty disciplined, um, whether it comes to that hard work, working out, whatever. I'm pretty disciplined in my life. But one thing that I've always done is I always tackle the most complex issues early in the morning. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a morning person. You know, it, when it was time to be in the office, you know, I would drive. Sometimes my commute was 45, 50 miles away. I'd still be in the office by 6 o'clock in the morning, and there'd be some time, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, where I had to myself to think. I always think much clearer in the mornings when there's fewer distractions. So I would always make sure that I started my day out early by tackling the most complex and difficult issues when my head was the clearest and the distractions were at an absolute minimum. And that's something that I do, you know, even today. I get up early in the morning, get my coffee, sit right down to it. What's the thing that I know is out there? Let's not let it develop a life of its own. Let's nip it in the bud. Let's get to it. Let me think about it early and let me launch this missile early in the morning. Is there is there a book you'd recommend uh, to future finance leaders? 
I'm, a, I'm an avid fan of history, um, military history in particular, and I think I probably learned more about leadership and managing people and reading history books than I ever learned in, in any of my management classes. I think there's, you know, there's so much more to be learned for those who've had the physical and you know, moral courage to take an action or make a decision or take a stand that's not empowered. Um, so to me, I've learned a huge amount uh, in, that, in that part of my life. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I just think there's so many lessons of those you look at, and you just know to yourself these people were successful. Uh, I just read a book last year. I was flying back and forth quite a bit to, uh, to the West Coast, and there was a biography on President Grant by Ron Chernow, and it was not a light read. It was well over 1,000 pages. But here was somebody who you know, had doubts. Everyone doubted him his entire life. Uh, he doubted himself sometimes as well, but he always you know, stuck to himself ended up he, he believed in himself and he constantly persevered and stuck to his principles and treated others um, in many ways the way he wanted to be treated, which was, was fairly. And I thought there was just some great lessons to be learned by having that kind, uh, kind of courage and admitting, you know, admitting his failures when he, when, when he was failing. Well, uh, we're up to our final question, but I have one last one I want to uh, throw at you before our, our final question. Um, and this is, uh, this is as many years as – you stayed at IBM. You now have had two CFO tours of duty outside of um, IBM. Would you uh, – do you ever think I should have left earlier? Um, you know, I think the experience that I got in those last years had made all the difference. So the answer would be no. I think I left at the right time. Well, thank you for uh, for that answer. Uh, we, we've put that one to bed, and I uh, somehow I'm not surprised by by your answer. Uh, but thank you, Kieran, for indulging us there. I want to ask you to uh, look forward finally and uh, thinking about the next twelve months. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next twelve months? Sure. So, from my perspective, it's all about sustaining momentum. Um, you know, we've really had some very strong momentum here the last three quarters of our of our year. Uh, finally returned the company after more than a decade of declining to top-line growth. It's, you know, it's been a long, difficult road, and with my perspective, the journey is just beginning. So, one, sustaining, uh, sustaining that. Two is I've been busy, um, you know, strengthening my balance sheet, just uh, did some refinancing of my, of my, of my debt and restaged that uh, out through time. So continuing, uh, continuing to focus on that. Organizationally, actually spending a lot of time with my own function about continuing the journey of digitizing and you know, introducing automation into our own financial processes. I think we spend too much of our time still inputting, retrieving, reconciling, and reporting on data, and not enough time, uh, certainly less than ideal in, in, in my own opinion, uh, of really analyzing and using it effectively you know, to, to help drive change in the business. So that's some of the stuff that I'm partnering with my, with, with my colleagues in both the IT function as well as in um, as in, on my own team to really uh, you know to drive AI into our business. Karen McGrath, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Well, Jack, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate the time. Listeners, do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, 
check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.